Welcome to Skinny Trees, Lift Health for All, the Well Mama edition. Join us for this limited series where we have conversations with a variety of experts and community leaders in the field of maternal and child health to discuss how to advance maternal health equity in Illinois. Hi, my name is Rabia Dahdur, a clinical research associate with the Center for Health Equity Transformation. And joining me today is Dr. Carolyn Suffren, Dr. Suffren is a medical anthropologist and obstetrician gynecologist at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. She worked as a physician at the San Francisco jail from 2007 to 2013, where she started an on-site women's health specialty clinic. Her work is dedicated to research, advocacy, and care for incarcerated women, especially at the intersection of healthcare and criminal justice reform. Dr. Suffren currently leads the Advocacy and Research on Reproductive Wellness of Incarcerated People, ARRWIP. ARRWIP is a group of researchers examining the intersections of reproductive justice and the criminal legal system out of Johns Hopkins University. ARRWIP started with the prison, the Pregnancy in Prison Statistics, or PIPS project, the first ever systematic study of pregnancy outcomes from carceral situ- institutions in the U.S. She is also author of the book, Jail Care, Finding the Safety Net for Women Behind Bars, published in 2017, that focuses on the experiences of incarcerated pregnant women, as well as on the practices of the jail guards and health providers who care for them. Her book describes the contradictory ways that care and maternal identity emerge within a punitive space presumed to be devoid of care. Welcome, Dr. Carolyn Suffren, to the Skinny Trees podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for being here. Um, Really appreciate your time with us. Uh, My first question, I will jump right in um, with some statistics. (laughs) So between 1980 and 2019, the number of incarcerated women increased by more than 700%, rising from a total of 26,378 in the 1980 year to just over 218,000 in the year 2019. Who are these women and why did they end up behind bars? Well, that rise, that exponential rise that you described is so Um, shocking. It always shocks me to hear a 700% increase. And we've seen a a ballooning of our incarcerated population for both males and females and transgender individuals over the last four decades as part of um, the phenomenon of mass incarceration, which is a convergence of of structural racist policies, um, criminal legal system policies, um, a, a retreat from support of community safety net systems that that have converged into our over-reliance in this country on incarceration as a means of social and racialized control. But when we talk about the space that that women occupy within that phenomenon, it's one that often gets neglected. And women are just sort of thought of as interchangeable as as men, um, or they're just not discussed at all. And so it's important to recognize that that 700% increase, sure, it parallels an increase in the overall incarcerated population, but women have been the fastest growing segment of the incarcerated population. So they've seen a greater um, rate of their increase. Um, And the reasons that they are, are enmeshed in the criminal legal system and end up behind bars have little to do, or less, I should say, less to do with them being 
you know, threats to public safety um, or, or hardened criminals, and much more to do with things that we think of in public health and, and clinical care as social and structural determinants of health. So the women that I've taken care of uh, when, I, when I worked as a physician in jail and the women I work with on policy and advocacy and research um, who've experienced incarceration, most of these women are young women between the ages of 18 and 45. Um, the majority of them are mothers. And in fact, um, just to put another statistic out there to add to yours, um, nearly two thirds of incarcerated women are mothers and the primary caregivers to young children. So when they become incarcerated, it has a ripple effect on the people that, and the children and communities that they leave behind. Um, the majority of these women um, are arrested for nonviolent charges and um, things that are um, not, you know, they're again, not huge threats to public safety. Um, I wanna be clear though, that as our conversation con continues and we talk about some of the healthcare issues, doesn't matter what someone is arrested or, or charged for, they, they deserve, they deserve um, healthcare while they're behind bars. But it, the 70% the arrested for, for minor charges is just to give you a sense um, you know, of some of the things that people are behind bars for, whether that's um, property crimes, um, drug-related crimes, and um, things that, you know, I, I, some of the patients I've taken care of, I remember they were in jail for shoplifting diapers or soap or things that, you know, offenses that are so minor um, that jail is not really the place for them. And what they, need, what they needed was not time in jail. What they needed were community supports and stable housing. Um, they needed mental health care treatment and treatment for substance use disorders. But the, the conditions of women's, the women who are enmeshed in this system, the conditions of their lives that lead them to be involved in the criminal legal system are things like poverty, unstable housing, gen, being victims of gender-based violence, mental health care issues, um, um, and experiencing structural racism as well. Thank you so much for, for um, uh, yeah, informing us about that. I My next question is about um, how your work and research has lifted the veil of pregnant and incarcerated people. Um, what have you found are the unique needs and concerns uh, for the pregnant population in, in prisons and jails? Well, the first um, the first thing to consider is um, you know what is healthcare like for people who be who are behind bars and, and then specifically pregnant people. And a really interesting um, uh, legal. Um, fact to know is that incarcerated people are the have a constitutional right to health care, and in fact are the only people in our country with a constitutional right to health care. So let that sink in for a moment, right? They, these are people who, when they enter prison or jail, by design, as part of their punishment, as part of their sentence, they have most of their rights stripped from them, but they gain this right to health care that people in uh, so-called free society do not have as a constitutional right. And that's based in a 1976 Supreme Court case, Estelle versus Gamble, that established that not to provide access to health care was cruel and unusual punishment, and so a violation of the Eighth Amendment. So the, the, that set sort of a, a floor, a constitutional requirement, but um, the, the 
challenge with that having a constitutional requirement like that is the what happens next. And what happened next is that there are no mandatory standards for healthcare services, no mandatory system of oversight for what healthcare services should look like in prisons and jails and what, what care people have access to. And so you get wildly different access to care um, from one prison to prison, one jail to, to jail. And so when it comes to pregnancy-specific care and the, the issues that we would think about for, for pregnant folks who are behind bars, um, there's even more variability because um, women's health, women's gender-specific health care needs, including pregnancy, have um, often gotten neglected because it's such a smaller proportion of the over, overall population, but it obviously has such a, a huge impact uh, making sure that pregnant people get the care that they need to have healthy um, pregnancies and have the pregnancy outcomes that they want for their pregnancies. And so, so just that basic fact that pregnancy care um, varies so dramatically from site to site, you might be at one prison and get full scope quality pregnancy care from um, a certified nurse midwife and an obstetrician and appropriate nutrition and consultations when you need it. Um, and then you might have, um, have another facility where, um, where you get no prenatal care at all. Um, and so that's one thing to consider about um, the conditions um, for, for pregnant people is just the health care that they, that they get or do not get. Um, on top of that, um, just thinking about the experience of being pregnant and being in an environment that is intended to deprive you of the comforts of, of daily living and things that we take for granted. So some of the listeners, perhaps you've been pregnant yourself or, or maybe you know someone who's pregnant. Um, imagine being in an environment where you have to ask permission to use the bathroom, where you don't get to choose what time you eat your meals. Um, where breakfast is served, you know, at 4.35 in the morning, lunch at 11.30 in the morning, dinner at 4.30 in the afternoon. You don't get to choose what you eat. Um, the food may not be healthy or appropriate for pregnancy. Maybe you're pregnant. If you're pregnant, you might need to eat small, frequent meals um, and, uh, you know, might have some nausea and might need to eat only certain foods. You don't have those choices or that control over your body when you're in prison or jail. Um, Think about um, your sleeping arrangements. You know, the, the mattresses um, or, or sleeping arrangements in prisons and jails are somewhat variable. And in some cases, it might be a thin, a thin foam mattress on a cement floor. Um, in many other cases, um, it's bunk beds, usually also with a thin mattress. But you wouldn't, if you're pregnant, you don't want to be climbing up to a top bunk. Um, and so, um, you know, in many prisons and jails, they do allow pregnant people specifically to have a bottom bunk, but that becomes something that, that you know, has to be authorized and becomes a privilege uh, when you're in prison or jail, but it's something we might take for granted um, as, you know, you shouldn't have to have a doctor write, write an order for you to get a, a bottom bunk. Um, so even just some of the, the ways of, of living, you know, day to day when you're pregnant and, and in custody, then there's the sense of social isolation that you can feel. It can be in, you know, in my experience, in the research I've conducted and um, the clinical care I've provided for, 
for so many pregnant folks who are behind bars, it's such an isolating experience and there's so much uncertainty. You don't know what's going to happen. Um, you know, if you, and if you're in jail and you don't even know how long your sentence is or your time in jail is going to last, you don't know, am I going to be in jail when I go into labor? Um, who's going to take care of my baby? How will I be treated? Will I be shackled when I'm in labor? Um, because that's something that is um, that is still legal in 16 states. And even in the 34 states that prohibit the practice, um, we know it still happens all the time. Um, there are some other um, challenges um, that and, and concerns to think about for pregnant folks who are behind bars. Um, one is abortion access. We know that um, incarcerated women uh, retain their constitutional right to abortion, but in practice, as our research has found, um, this does not always happen. And some prisons and jails have policies that explicitly don't allow them to access abortion. And others may, you know, on paper allow it, but may put up um, additional barriers such as making the person pay for it themselves. And they don't have access to their usual insurance or even Medicaid because Medicaid gets suspended. Um, and then the last thing that I, I'll say on this topic of, of unique needs and concerns, especially that you know people might not not think about, is um, for pregnant people behind bars. Is you know what happens if they do give birth in custody? You know, and most of the time they'll give birth um, in a hospital-based setting. Um, they don't, you know, they may be treated, um, you know, with respect and dignity by the by the hospital birthing staff. They may not. They may have a guard in their room at all times, which is, you know, a violation and an invasion of their privacy. Um, when when they give birth, um, you know, they may just have a few hours um, with their with their baby. Um, sometimes we've seen that that their postpartum recovery in the hospital is, is sort of rushed and, and expedited so that um, they can get back to the prison or jail and have the, the guard who's who's watching them, you know, not dispatched to the hospital and, and back um, on site. And so they don't get much time with their baby. And when they come back to prison or jail, um, having been, you know, separated from their newborn, all the hormonal changes that happen postpartum and the uncertainty of what's going to happen to their, um, their parental bond and their, their infant, that's just a huge setup for postpartum mental health challenges, um, not to mention the lack of, of consistent access to um, breastfeeding and, and providing breast milk. So there are many more concerns and unique needs um, to, to discuss with this population, but, but those are just a few that I wanted to highlight. Right. Thank you so much for, for describing those. Um, so when we look at we look at um, what we'll call maternal health outcomes. So the um, what is happening to um, to with the births uh, with with the mothers in the prison? How does that compare to the the general U.S. population, the the non incarcerated population? Well, I'm glad you asked that because to answer that, we we need data about what's happening. You know, how many pregnant people are there, and what are the outcomes of those pregnancies? And until very recently, we had no idea. We had no idea how many pregnant people were in prisons and jails in this country, how many gave birth. And that lack of data in and of itself, I think, signifies how much this population is neglected, right? They're left out of, um, of you know, our national statistics on births um, and pregnancies. You know, the CDC doesn't collect these data. The Bureau of Justice Statistics, which does collect demographic data on the number of incarcerated people, um, they don't collect any health, they, they collect very minimal, I should say, health-related data, but not pregnancy 
data. So my research team at Johns Hopkins, um, we collected data. Um, I should also say there have been small there there had been small studies at individual prisons or jails. Um, you know, retrospective um, studies in, in different geographic lo locales. But we wanted, my research team at Johns Hopkins, we wanted to have a national sample and a sense of what's happening nationally. And so we conducted a study from 2016 to 2017, um, where we enrolled um, 22 state prison systems, so state level data, um, and all of these states voluntarily participated. Uh, we also had all federal prisons and we had six jails, including the five largest jails. And what we did was we had them report data to our study database um, on a monthly basis for one year. So we got one year of data, but it was also prospectively collected. So it wasn't like at the end of the year, we said, see if you can remember or figure out how many pregnant folks you had. Um, so we collected these data and um, what we found, um, and these are very just basic statistics and outcomes, but before this, we had no idea. We found that at our study prisons, there were um, 1,396 or nearly 1,400 admissions of pregnant people to prisons each year. Um, that amounts to about 4% of females entering prisons who are pregnant. Um, and then at, at the prisons, there were 750 live births, uh, 753. Um, we also found that there were 46 miscarriages. There were only 11 abortions, which were was only 1% of all the pregnancies that ended in custody. Um, we had four stillbirths and two ectopic pregnancies. Um, in our jails, there were a little over 1,600 admissions of pregnant people. So think about that. We only had six jails in our study, and yet it was 1,600 people. Um, there were close to 150 births in our jail sample um, and 41 miscarriages, 33 abortions, or about 15% of the pregnancies that ended. Um, we were not able to collect um, data on things like NICU stays, et cetera, but we did have information about preterm births, and we found overall that our rate of preterm birth um, was 6%, um, which is lower than the national, um, national average, but, uh, um, but when you, we looked at individual prisons, there were some that had very high rates of preterm birth, as high as 25%, so it really you know, when we broke it down by state, there's really a lot of variability. Um, there were no maternal deaths in our in our study as, as well. So your question, how do we then compare this to what happens in the general population? Well, um, our data, I think what they, what they do is they tell us a story. First of all, there are pregnant people behind bars, their pregnancies, and some of them, their pregnancies will end while they're in custody. And they end in a variety of ways, but most of them end in births. Um, and um, some of them will end in miscarriages, and that there's, you know, we found the, the very low proportion of pregnancies that ended in abortion raises concern about whether incarcerated people are getting access, especially those in prison, are getting access to abortion. And then the fact that there is was so much variability from site to site shows us, I think, you know, what we, what we could infer from the lack of standardization of medical care is that there is there's little standardization and there's so therefore so much variability in, in the outcomes. Um, but the bottom line is there are pregnant people behind bars and we need to make sure that they get um, quality, comprehensive pregnancy care that's equivalent to what they would receive in the community. 
Thank you, Dr. Suffren. Um, so, you know, speaking to that, what are some incarceration specific challenges uh, that you've encountered as both as a clinician and researcher and, and how have you navigated that to improve the lives of pregnant people in prisons and jails? Yeah, so I'll, I'll expand on some of the, the unique concerns and needs of, of pregnant folks that I, I talked about earlier and some of the, the challenges that um, we've navigated. And I say we because um, I'm not the only one working in this space, and there are a lot of really um, fantastic people doing um, work, a lot of previously incarcerated um, folks who've formed advocacy groups, a lot of um, some um, doula programs that not only provide doula care for, for currently incarcerated folks, but also provide um, uh, postpartum support and, and do a lot of advocacy. So some of the specific challenges um, are um, in hospital care, um, when incarcerated pregnant folks come to the hospital for um, either acute pregnancy concerns or um, to give birth. Um, there's a lot of confusion, I think, on the part of, of hospital staff to uh, sometimes of how are you supposed to care for this population? What are the rules? What are the legal requirements? What are the ethical obligations? And so I've seen a lot of variability in, um, and this is also supported by, um, by research on, on providers' knowledge about laws and best practices related to shackling of pregnant people, um, which, by the way, is a practice that should not happen. Um, pregnant people should not be um, should not be restrained, um, should not be shackled, and certainly not in the third trimester or during labor or delivery, but really at any point. Um, which is why there are 34 states and the federal government who have passed laws prohibiting the practice. But because um, sometimes there can be confusion and providers are not necessarily educated about what you know what the best practices are, um, you know, and um, sometimes the guards who accompany people um, may misinterpret the spirit of the law. Um, it still happens. Um, and so in those confusing moments when nobody knows what the rules are, who's, who's in charge, you know, if there are healthcare providers who are listening, I would encourage you ahead of time so you have a plan to know what is your state law, first of all, um, and you can find that information uh, through a variety of ways, but the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists does have a repository of current state laws prohibiting the practice. Um, and you can also just Google it to find out what it is in your state, but know your state law um, and then work ahead of time with um, a jail or prison that might be bringing patients to your, um, to your hospital so that you can be on the same page about the, you know, the intention is that they should not be restrained. There are very few exceptions um, to this. And so that you can have this, um, this plan, have your hospital policies match the state law. I've also seen that as one of the challenges where hospital policy is actually contradicting the state shackling law. And I've actually seen correctional officers advocate for pregnant folks on labor and delivery when security, hospital security staff are, are saying the, you know, um, the opposite uh, of what the law is supposed to be. So, um, so having those conversations with between hospital security and labor and delivery leadership and, um, um, and correctional staff ahead of time, um, that is one strategy. Um, advocate, advocating, passing laws, working you know, with ACLU and, and other, um, uh, other grassroots, uh, grassroots efforts to pass anti-shackling laws is another strategy. But again, without that implementation on the ground, um, it, it still happens. Um, another challenge um, 
that that we've seen is, um, as I kind of alluded to, the very brief time that a birthing person has with their newborn if they're in custody. And while they're in, you know, if they give birth in a hospital, um, while they're in custody, unless there's a medical reason for the newborn to be in the nursery, for instance, in the NICU, um, you know, there's no reason that the baby can't be in the room with the, uh, with their parent, with their mother, um, you know, just the same rules that you would apply uh, for a non-incarcerated person who gave birth. You know, she's, it's not like she's going to, you know, abscond with her, with her infant, uh, you know, she just gave birth. Um, she has a guard who should be outside her room. But even so, that you know, why would that even be a concern? And this is precious time that that they have with their newborn. And hospitals um, should work with their local their local um, you know facilities to make sure that that time is um, is maximized and that you know you're not rushing people out of the hospital. Um, uh, just because, you know, just because of the convenience of the facility, that you really should keep them in the hospital as you would for any postpartum individual so that um, they can have time with their newborn and also um, to make sure that they're safe um, to be discharged. Um, and in terms of uh, strategies for navigating that, um, you know, again, I think preemptively having plans in place um, so that it's not a you know, oh, we only see this a few times a year. What are we supposed to do? Just have it have it planned out ahead of time. Great, thank you so much for outlining those those strategies for us. Um, pivoting to your book, uh, your book uh, titled "Jail Care: Finding the Safety Net for Women Behind Bars," published in 2017. This opened up the conversation about how jails provide a semblance of stability for this marginalized population that suffer a multitude of oppressions, as we described, uh, on the outside. Um, so um, what has changed since 2017 and what hasn't um, since the publication of the book? Well, some of the things that we've seen change since 2017 is that um, we're starting to see a very slight drop, but still a drop in the number of women who are behind bars. And we've been seeing that for men for um, over five years, um, almost a decade now. Um, and the headlines are that the incarcerated population is dropping. But until this past year, that was not true for women. So since 2017, we finally have seen um, you know, a drop by about 4,000 in the number of, of women behind bars. Um, that's and that's even pre-COVID. So it, it's not as a, it's not resulting from um, you know any changes in policy to try to depopulate as an infection mitigation strategy. Um, some other things that have changed, um, and, and a lot of these changes are really state to state, but we've seen a, a rapid rise in the number of states that have passed anti-shackling laws. So um, I don't know the exact number since 2017, but it's it's somewhere. Um, close to about 10 states that have passed laws in the last few years, it's 2017. Again, laws, you know, are not necessarily corresponding to what's happening on the ground, but that's still a huge victory. And um, each one of those laws that has been passed 
Um, you know, that those are that's a new um, group of policymakers who are more aware now of the issues facing pregnant incarcerated people. I will also add that a lot of those laws um, have been passed due to the advocacy of previously incarcerated women who have led a lot of these, these campaigns. So we have more laws. We also have the First Step Act that was um, signed into law in 2018, which, um, uh, which prohibits shackling of pregnant people in federal custody. That law also requires data collection on the number of pregnant people behind bars and what happens to them. Um, that only applies to federal prisons, though. Um, so, um, you know, there are some things that, that have changed in terms of laws and, and, um, and policies, um, but some of them only apply to, to women in, in federal prison. Um, I, I also want to, um, to highlight a recent law that went into effect in the state of Minnesota, which is um, a very positive change and, and hopefully a model for other states. Um, the Healthy Start Act uh, went into effect July 1st, 2021. And that's a law that essentially um, is not going to incarcerate pregnant people. If a pregnant person gets arrested, um, you know, and even charged with something, depending, you know, there are a few exceptions, um, you know, depending on the, the nature of the, the charge, um, but they will be, um, you know, they will be serving their time in a community-based alternative setting. Um, and if they do have some of their sentence, you know, to complete, um, once they've given birth and 12 months postpartum, right? So they can, you know, their, their sentence, they won't be incarcerated for um, until their birth, their baby is 12, 12 months old. Um, but if, you know, if there is still some time on their sentence after that, then they may be, um, they may uh, serve time in prison. But for the most part, they're not going to be incarcerated and then they're going to be under community supervision um, and have, um, you know, so that they can parent and support their infants and um, be in a, a an environment that's more conducive to their recovery, if you know, if they, for instance, have substance use disorder, and is giving them the supports and resources that they that they need. Now, what hasn't changed since 2017? You know, we still have um, you know well over 200,000 women behind bars. We still have people giving birth in custody. We still have the you know variability in substandard care in a lot of cases. And we still have, you know, we don't have a strong investment in the community social and medical safety net services that um, that these women need. And when I mentioned earlier, the variability in outcomes like preterm birth and that overall in our sample, it was lower. What I should have mentioned is that I wouldn't want listeners to take away from that, that, oh, preterm birth is, is lower in prison. So people, you know, who might be at risk for preterm birth, we should put them in prison. That's not at all what we should be taking away. Um, you know, as a couple of older, smaller studies similarly found um, that compared to the general population, people who give birth in custody have lower rates of preterm birth, um, stillbirth, and even in one study, low birth weight. But that's, when you compare them to community match controls, the rates were much higher. So I think what that shows us is that the lives that, um, uh, that most of these women have outside of prison and, and jail is shaped by so many system intersecting systems of oppression and such a lack of support and such a lack of valuing of their their parenthood um, that you know sure if they're gonna you know being in an environment like prison um, you know where they 
you know, at least have a, a roof over the head, their head. And even if it's not great nutrition, they're getting some, some nutrition. That's pretty dire if, if you know, prison is showing compared to, um, um, you know, to uh, the general population that it's, um, their, their outcomes are, are better. So um, there, there's really a lot of um, concern uh, about what's happening in the community and prisons and jails are, they're not isolated institutions elsewhere. Everything that happens to the pregnant folks behind bars um, has implications for them and their children and their families and our communities. And also what happens to people in the community has, um, you know, has implications for the people who are, are cycling in and out of our, our carceral system. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Suffren. Um, I had I have a, one more question, but also um, since you were talking about this, I'm, I'm wondering, um, do we know anything about the long-term consequences of these children born in jails to has there any been any kind of study on that or follow up with the with the children themselves that's a good question we don't have much data at all we do have a small amount of data um, uh, from a, a study a few studies that have looked at um, mother infant care programs sometimes called prison nursery programs where Babies will go back um, to prison with their with their mother, with the birthing person, and their special wings of the prison. There are um, about eight of these programs at in, at eight state prisons across the country, and and some of those have found um, you know that um, behavioral development is it's not necessarily improved um, compared to those who are not in these programs but that you know the babies do they do do well when they're um, with their with their mothers um, but we don't have great data long-term data in general on infants who are born to mothers in custody and that's something um, you know that we I think there's a dire need for that um, so to to even further make the case for for changing our systems and and um, and looking at the Minnesota model as well. Um, there you know it's we do know that children who have parents who are incarcerated many many of them will end up in the foster care system while their parents are are incarcerated and then most states suspend parental rights after 15 months. Um, and so, you know, a lot of children will end up in the foster care system and that that combined with having a parent who's incarcerated increases their risk of um, being incarcerated when they become adults as well. Um, but in terms of babies born to moms while they're in custody, that's an area where we, we definitely could use more data. Um, at the same time, I think we can also intuit that, um, you know, there there are some, there are probably some uh, significant negative consequences for an infant, um, you know, who's born to a mom in custody and then they get separated. And if there isn't a family caring for that infant, you know, then it does go into state custody system and starting its life from infancy within that system with all the potential um, pitfalls and harms. Thank you. Um, and for, I have one more question uh, about, uh, the methodology that you used in the pregnancy in prison statistics, the PIPS study, could you describe the methodology used in that study and also um, in what ways these findings could help shape public policy in the future? So we had an individual site reporter at each prison and jail track these data each month. And that was one of, you know, one of the surprise 
some people, when I describe the study, they're surprised, like, oh, they weren't already collecting these data? No. Um, they're, you know, with the, the exception of one or two systems that, um, you know, there might have been a, a state policy or something that re required them um, to coll intermittently collect data. But for the most part of the 30 or so facilities overall that were in our study, most of them weren't already collecting data. So they had to set up tracking systems each month. And then we collected de-identified aggregate data um, each month from these site reporters on outcomes that included how many pregnant people were admitted to your facility um, this month, um, how many pregnant people you know, were, were in your facility on the last day of the month, um, how many people gave birth, how many had miscarriages, abortions, stillbirths. Um, so those were the, the main, uh, we also asked about preterm birth and C-section. Those are the main outcomes that everyone reported on a monthly basis. We then also asked supplemental sections um, for six month time periods about things like um, um, medical conditions of pregnancy, like high blood pressure and diabetes. We also asked about mental health conditions and substance use disorders. We asked about breastfeeding. Um, and um, uh, access to postpartum contraception. So we asked about a number of other um, another thing, a number of other outcomes as well. But the main ones were the the preg primary pregnancy outcomes. And then we also at baseline did a, a survey on policies um, and access to care and services um, related to pregnancy at each facility. In terms of how these findings could shape public policy, I'd love to give a few examples on on how it has already and the ways we can. Cap, we can capitalize on that momentum. One is that um, I mentioned the First Step Act has a requirement for the Bureau of Justice Statistics to collect these data from federal prisons. And that provision and the outcomes that they collected came directly from the PIP study because the BOP was the Bureau of Prisons was already reporting to our study. Um, so there could be a model where just you know, requiring all states um, to collect these data. And we've shown that it can be done. Um, we've shown that it can be done. I just, you know, it would be great to have some policy and some requirement that it be correct, collected on an ongoing basis. And it's not just my small research team at Johns Hopkins, um, you know, providing the infrastructure for them to report it. Um, other ways that these findings could be, could help shape public policy, um, you know, related to when you have data, it can help um, drive conversations. And I think data um, are important in multiple forms. There's the quantitative data, like I mentioned with the PIP study, how many pregnant people are there? Um, there's also qualitative data, the lived experiences of, of people who've been affected. And both of those forms of data combined can be powerful shapers of policy. And as, as an example, um, you know, uh, with our one of the sites that participated in our study was uh, the Cook County Jail in Chicago, which was which is one of the largest jails in the country. And um, the the people at the Cook County Jail who were collecting the data, you know, they they used the data from the study and um, spoke with their um, their sheriff's department and their correctional leadership. And they use the data to say, look, this is how many pregnant people we have each year and how many people are giving birth. And it's not a huge number of our overall population. But if you look at the absolute number of people, that's a lot of babies that are being born to, to women in custody. And do they really need to be here? Um, and so the sheriff's department heard that argument and saw that it's a lot of people whose, you know, whose lives are impacted, um, but in the grand scheme, it's not a huge number of the population. Um, and they 
instituted a policy where if someone was arrested in their third trimester of pregnancy, they wouldn't they wouldn't come into jail custody um, with a few a few very few exceptions. They would be um, you know under community supervision. Um, and I should add, this is you know the this policy has has worked. Um, and uh, what I should add, and what I should have mentioned at the beginning, is is to note that a majority of people who are be, being held in our county jails, women and men and transgender individuals alike, most of them are there pre-trial, meaning they haven't even been convicted of anything. Um, and they're there because they can't afford their bail, even if their bail is set low um, because their lives are shaped by um, economic inequality and poverty, they, um, they often can't can't afford their bail. And so recognizing that as well with this small group, subgroup of pregnant folks in Cook County, you know, most of them were there because they couldn't afford their bail. And yet, you know, before this policy changed, they had to give birth um, in custody. Um, so, so those are some examples of policy changes that have already happened. Um, some states have also used um, data from the PIP study in their anti-shackling campaigns to like make the case for um, how many people it's it's impacting. So I think there are a lot of ways that um, these data can be used to, to shape policy. Um, and I hope that the way forward includes models like what's happening in Minnesota, where we're really thinking about alternatives to incarceration. Until that time comes though, we need to make sure that pregnant folks behind bars are getting the care that they need and that they're constitutionally re required to have access to. Thank you so much, Dr. Safran. Um, thank you for taking the time to talk with us about this very important topic. And um, I will I will also mention again that um, that your book, Jail Care, Finding the Safety Net for Women Behind Bars, um, is available. You can go to the website jailcare.org. Um, and from there, you can find more information and where to find that book. Um, again, thank you so much for joining us today and um, hope you have a good rest of the day. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and authors and do not necessarily reflect or represent the views and opinions of the following entities. National Institutes of Health, the National Cancer Institute, Northwestern University, Northwestern Medicine, Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, the Institute for Public Health and Medicine, University of Illinois at Chicago, and Northeastern Illinois University. Skinny Trees is proudly produced and edited in the Center for Health Equity Transformation, led by Dr. Melissa Simon at Northwestern University. Dr. Simon is a member of the United States Preventive Services Task Force, USPSTF. This podcast does not necessarily represent the views and policies of the USPSTF. Due to the social nature of this podcast, the content used might be copyrighted by another entity or person. This podcast claims no copyright to set content.